This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. This is Season 7, and every week during this season, we'll bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations who are focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker, and this podcast aims at doing just that. Before we get into today's session, I want you to know about an ebook called Multiplying Disciples by Winfield Bevins, which discipleship.org released in partnership with Exponential. Multiplying Disciples draws wisdom from church history by looking at several important disciple-making movements, the Celtic movement, the Moravian movement, and the Methodist movement. These movements offer vital contributions to the church that can help you Rediscover the power of making and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. Author Winfield Bevins is the director of church planting at Asbury Theological Seminary. Download his ebook, Multiply Disciples, at discipleship.org slash ebooks, or click on the link of the show notes for this episode. Today's featured episode is from Exponential and their track of the National Disciple Making Forum called Mobilize Disciples to Multiply Disciples. The episode is called The Three Dimensions of Multiplication, featuring Jason Stewart and Todd Wilson. All right. My name's Todd Wilson. For those that weren't here the first time, I'm uh, founder of Exponential and have the blessing of being co-founder of Discipleship.org, where we are. Um, Exponential is, uh, uh, I like to say we're advocates or activists for multiplication, church multiplication. And uh, what I explained last session was um, our mission is to see the percentage of churches that ever reproduce get to at least 16%. That's what sociologists say. You've got to get uh, a group of, uh, any group to 16% for that to become kind of the normative behavior. In the U.S. church right now, about 7% of U.S. churches ever reproduce. So our mission at Exponential is to keep closing that gap from 7 to 16. Um, I would like to be able to shut Exponential down someday, uh, and, and that would happen if we can get that percentage of churches reproducing to, to 16. Um, at the core, though, of church multiplication, all church multiplication has disciple-making movements at the core. So we don't see church multiplication movements without disciple-making movements. So we've got to be focused on the disciple-making part um, also. We realized that a handful of years ago, so that's why we got very interested in helping birddiscipleship.org because imagine if you're a church planting ministry, but you can't accomplish your mission if the discipleship community doesn't get its uh, act more together. So um, that's our connection with the church uh, disciple-making parts. Now, uh, we've got a framework at Exponential called Level 5 Multiplication. Um, Just real quickly for those that weren't here the last session, um, here's how simple the Level 5 is. Level 1 is a subtraction culture. If I do a graph of you of something subtracting, that's level one. Level two is plateauing or kind of stuck. Level three is adding or growing. Level four is reproducing where it's an accelerated addition. It's a different kind of addition. And then multiplication is healthy reproduction several generations into the future. That's where you get an exponential kind of curve up. If you want to think movements, level five would be more movements that it's just kind of out of control going up and to the right. Um, About five years ago, when we were putting that framework together, the problem that we had in trying to put it together is that you can't find level five churches in America. 
And so we, we had a study group for about two years that was, we, we based it off just the mathematics I just gave you, subtraction, plateau, adding, reproducing, multiplying, and said, let's look at the 300 and some thousand churches in America, what the, what the behaviors in those five categories are. Well, because we don't have level five churches, it was hard to study level five, but we had to look more internationally. And this study group of about 20 people, it included uh, prominent networks, denominations, and individual uh, church leaders, um, came up with this level five framework. And what was particularly important is the level four and five, the reproducing and multiplying. Because such a small percentage of churches are in that category, the most frequent question we get at Exponential is the how do we get to level four and five? Like it's the you know, yeah, we want to be at four and five. How do we how do we get there? So what this team did for two years, they looked internationally, they looked where we could find strong level four behavior, reproducing behavior in the US church. And uh, this team boiled everything they were finding down into ten uh, factors that they saw in level four and five culture. Um, if if you go to exponential.org forward slash multipliers, there's a free downloadable book there, full-length book called Multipliers. Everything I'm talking about here is uh, in that book, and it's got a full description of those 10 characteristics that that team came up with over the, the time. But here's the thing. Most people can't remember 10. Uh, I can't remember all 10 of them. I could probably get about seven of them right now, but I can't even remember all 10. So the team decided we need to group the 10 and get them down to three, like group them together and have three factors. What we're going to cover in this session today are what we call at Exponential three dimensions of multiplication, or the the three kind of key things to having a healthy reproducing multiplying culture. So here's the deal. If that's not what you intended to come for, like if you, there's a whole lot of good workshops out there right now. I don't want you to feel bad if you need to get up and leave if that wasn't what you were uh, coming to. So that's what we're going to jump into. Here's what I want to ask. Um, anyone here uh, heard of or familiar with what's called a tension diagram? Anybody know what a tension diagram is? So let me, let me describe it functionally. Um, how many people are in full-time ministry here? Okay. Um, especially if you're in full-time ministry, here's the functional part of a thing. If you're in full-time ministry, sometimes there's this tension between spending time with family and having to be out a whole lot of nights a week and not getting time with family. That's every day. Every day. Sometimes in ministry there's a time tension. Sometimes there's a money tension. Sometimes you could make a whole lot more money in the marketplace than you could make in ministry. So there's this tension. Um, A tension diagram is simply if you took all of the factors in your life that are in tension with one another and could turn them into a diagram of what's pulling you in different directions. Got that picture in your mind? Like the tension's pulling you in places. The the other analogy that I want to use is tug of war. So imagine if we took this room and we split up into six teams right now. You've never done a six-way tug of war, but I want you to imagine um, that each of these lines is a rope. Sorry, picturing six teams that have three ropes. And if I had a red marker, uh, just imagine that each of these ropes has a red flag halfway down the rope. So we've got 
three simultaneous tug-of-wars going on. All three have a red flag. And the way you win this game is not by one team pulling theirs away. It's by everybody's pulling hard, but all three of those flags are staying centered on the bullseye. You found this, this delicate balance so that there's not one team pulling things one direction. Is that making sense? So that's where it fits to the whole idea of a tension diagram. You've got to find in life how to balance the tensions and find sanity amongst the tensions. So just imagine we're doing the three-way tug-of-war. What we found, those ten factors that I told you about that we boiled down to three, I want you to think of each of the three factors that we're going to cover in here as one of the lines. Okay? Does that, that make sense? And each of these lines has... Um, has an addition team and each has a multiplication team. And we've got to find the balance between the addition side pulling and the multiplication side pulling because oftentimes addition and multiplication are at odds with one another. So we've got to find the, the healthy balance between the two. What would happen if all of a sudden all three multiplication teams let go of the ropes? What would physically happen here? This dot would functionally move this direction, right? It would, you know, it's hard to say where, but it's, it's going to take it off center to where we aren't in balance. That's what's happening in the U.S. church. I'm going to show you as we walk through the three dimensions that all three components of multiplication we've cut off. We're just not doing them. And... Part of why we're not doing them is the way we're doing the addition end is not the way Jesus intended to do the addition end. So because we're not doing the addition end the right way, it ends up cutting off the... It, it actually causes the multiplication end to not be able to do its thing. Does that make sense? I'm an engineer by trade, so we'll, we won't get any more complicated than I, I promise, but I think in terms of whiteboard. So, All right. Any questions on this so far before I jump in? What I'm going to do is walk us through the three dimensions. I'm going to walk through, and this is here's how I want you to be thinking about this, is if you were trying to lead a church to be level four or five, especially level five multiplication, what are the factors that you'd, you, you get the benefit of starting with a blank piece of paper, starting a new church. What are the things that you'd absolutely have to, to hit hard? And again, remember, we, this team found, I said 10 factors. Some of those 10 had multiple parts. There were probably 15 different factors at level five, but they really did all boil down to these three. You could put them into the, the three categories. Okay. Um, here's the first dimension. There's a addition end and a multiply end. And let's... Uh, Let's just call this first one disciple-making. It may seem obvious like that that ought to be like a core thing, disciple-making, um, but here's the reality. Um, the average church in America, no matter what the mission statement says, does not functionally have disciple-making as the core purpose of the church. It's not actually the thing that's driving the decision-making, the budgeting, time allocation, staffing, it's, it's, it's a different thing. I would ask you this question. If you, 
Fortunately, Jesus is alive. If there was such a thing as Jesus' tombstone, Jesus, an activist for, and you're filling in the blank. And here's what I want you to think about. The, the, the age we live in right now, everyone is an activist for something. Everyone's an activist for something. Whether it's community development, racial reconciliation, justice issues. The, there's a list of really good things, all of which Jesus would be pleased with. Like, yeah, we've got to make progress on those. But if you had to pick one activist cause for Jesus, you have to pick one. What is it? Somewhere between, I would say disciple-making, the love and disciple-making, love-disciple-making, which are hard to take apart. But let's say disciple-making is right there. I mean, it's what he spent three years demonstrating. And so we've got to make sure that at the core of whatever we're doing, disciple-making is, is there. If you think about it, here's the reality. The other two dimensions I'm going to draw for you, they equally apply to Walmart, Starbucks, Google, Amazon. It's the disciple-making dimension. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And the disciple-making part of that that distinguishes uh, a level five church from a level five business or a level five anything else. Does that make sense? So let's talk through for a minute. Um, let me give you one more picture image. So um, the, uh, if, if all of my fingers represent different causes that are good causes, things the church needs to be doing, okay, pick your five, five things that, man, I wish our church was hitting a home run on those things. Here's the deal. If, if what happens if the five fingers aren't attached to the hand? Like, they're floundering fingers on the ground. And here's what I want to suggest to you. Disciple-making is the hub of the hand. If we, if we will attach our causes to disciple-making at the core and let it be the thing that unifies the causes, the causes will, the activism will make a difference. But activism that is separated from disciple-making, it, it's, it's almost a form of idolatry at this point if it's not attached in. So we've got to get disciple-making at the core. So here's what I want to ask. Let's not do what the church is doing first. Let's start with Jesus. Jesus' style of disciple-making. If we're talking about the addition component and the multiplication component, what, how would you characterize the addition part of disciple-making Jesus' way? How would you describe it? What are the factors that jump to your mind? We're going we're gonna to do a study on Jesus' style of disciple-making, and you've got to write a paper on what does addition look like in Jesus' style of disciple-making? Adding disciples. Adding Say again. Come follow me. What else? What are the characteristics? Again, don't put yourself in Jesus' shoes right now. You're you're studying the laboratory of Jesus and the disciples, and you're now going to write a paper on what you see. So one on one. It's it's. I'm going to put one on one down, but it's certainly uh, smaller. He he could have for three years filled up large auditoriums every day of the year, but he chose not to do that. He spent three years in, in at least a smaller context. What else? He went. Okay. 
And, and what's that mean for you? He moved out. He didn't stay in one place and call to himself. He went to. So go. What else? I think it was immersive in the sense that he invited him deeply into his life, too. It wasn't just an instructive thing, but it was a yes. let me walk with you. I'm going to put relational, living in relationship. All right. Let's just go with this, this some combination of intentional, relational, one-on-one -on -one or smaller kind of group thing. So what's the multiplication? What, how are we seeing, if, again, if we watch not just with the 12, but then what happens in the successive generations after that? What's multiplication in Jesus' method? And sending of the 70... So there, we'll just say there's a go here, too. But what else? What's the? You're having to define how multiplication happens. So how's it happen? Jesus, Jesus did the twelve. He didn't himself multiply. Well, I, I, some, but I mean, he's focused on the addition with the twelve. How does the multiplication actually happen after he's gone? They did what he did with, with them. They, they, don't miss the simplicity of this. I'm not trying to be complex. So this is what Jesus did. Relational disciple making. And this is just what his disciples doing what he did. If I can put it in simpler terms, it's a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple. You get your fourth generation into the future. I, we said in the first session, the definition of multiplication is healthy reproduction four generations into the future. When a disciple makes a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple four generations into the future, you have multiplication. Jesus' core engine for multiplication for 2,000 years is no more complicated than that. That's... it's. It's Jesus modeling relational disciple-making and then others repeating it is how it multiplies. So here's the question. Any, any questions or thoughts so far? So here's the question. <clears throat> Let's jump to how the church is adding. So if, if the description of Jesus' style is a relational, intentional one-on-one, -on -one, Let's now, if, if now you're going to be scientists studying in a laboratory a hundred churches, okay? So you're watching a hundred churches right now, and you're looking at how they're adding. What is the normative, if relational, intentional one-on-one -on -one is here, what is the normative method of adding in the church? What are the descriptors that we would put here? Would it be these? Is it something else? Classroom setting. So keep, let's keep going. Classroom setting. What? Fun. Daily what else? Daily and from house to house. Say again. Daily and from house to house. Daily and house to house. Yes. Is the average church in America house to house? No. The average church is no. So we're on what the actual churches are doing oh, right now. Doing so I, I would say uh, contrasting one-on-one, -on -one, I would say one-on-many. One on many, okay? If you had to choose, if relational disciple-making is the word here, and you had to pick one word to put on 
the, again, the average of the U.S. church right now, what's the one word that goes over here for adding? If you had to pick one. Attraction. Attractional? Attraction. 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 Growth. Programming. What else? Anything? Programming. Programming. I'm going to suggest to you programming is, it, it is the thing here. Or programmatic. I'm actually going to make the hypothesis that in this entire picture, when it falls apart, that the programmatic engine for addition in the church is the elephant in the room that keeps us from seeing reproduction and multiplication happen the way it needs to happen. So just hold that thought if you don't believe it yet. But here's what programmatic means. Um, it's 80% of our budget and effort on Sunday morning. It's small. It's anything that's programmatic it's, I, I said to our last session, we just finished a national discipleship study, and the, the, the toughest conclusion in the whole study is that um, pastors attribute almost anything in their schedule to discipleship stuff. So, like, the definition of discipleship in the church is, is we have so diluted this relational disciple-making thing, that now we can attribute everything from the time we spend driving to church on Sunday to the sermon preps we do, to fill it, like every activity on the, ca on the calendar can get lumped into the discipleship category. And, and I would suggest to you, discipleship, which isn't a word in the Bible, but it's, it is a programmatic thing. Disciple-making is an activity it's an action. It's something that you're doing. Um, and so programmatic would be everything from outreach events we do to new ministries that we start to the Sunday morning thing. And here's the question. If Jesus' style of disciple-making is inherently the core engine that can multiply, it physically can multiply, how many programs in the history of the world have multiplied? Even in your church, if they're really clicking, they don't multiply. Programs consume, they don't multiply. There's no programs that actually multiply, or nobody's ever been able to come up with one for me. They, they consume. So here's what ends up happening. When programs replace relational disciple-making and programs don't multiply, we cut off the multiplication. And what's the consequence of cutting off this and replacing it with this that doesn't multiply? What, it, what Physically, what again, if we're scientists looking at the experiment, what do we see happen? It's eventually going to die, but what's happening before it dies? What's happening if you're programmatically driven to add? You've got to find the next silver bullet. You've got to find the next thing. You're always spending, the, the energy that you're investing, that your staff is investing, I'm going to call it sideways energy. It's sideways energy to run <clears throat> programs, and that energy is not going into relational disciple-making. It's going into running programs. Because what do programs do? They consume. Anything that consumes has to be fed. And so we've, we've designed at our core 
Think about the insanity of what we've done in the operating system of the church. We have designed a system for adding that requires consumption. Is that making sense? Yes. Our primary mechanism of adding is not Jesus-style relational disciple-making with disciples who make disciples. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm saying if we could go randomly pick 100 churches and look at the last 10 disciples or converts at 100 churches, we're going to find that 90-plus percent of them were brought programmatically not by disciples who are making disciples. We've embraced a method of adding that actually requires consumption. And it's kind of like we're shooting ourselves in the foot because now we've got to keep doing more consumption to do more adding, more consumption to do more adding. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. Let me pause and just see if there's any questions or comments before we move on to another one. So would you say then that we have equated a convert with a disciple so everything that we do in the church fits into that discipleship term. So you're saying we need, we need to change that to disciple making because that means yeah. that I, we're actually making disciples and everyone is actually doing that. Yeah. I think you bring up a good point. I think that for the strengths that are here in the programmatic part, um, the urgency of evangelism you can actually programmatically go after evangelism and urgently and apply things. So there is a strength that can be there on the evangelism side of programmatic. But here's the problem. When, when, when evangelism isn't holistically integrated with the disciple-making process, the second huge consequence of the programmatic part here, and, and, and it's the statistics that we're hearing, what is the product? What is the again, we're scientists looking at the church. What is the product that the church is producing in addition to growth? The growth that's being produced here. But if if somebody who's not a Christian is describing what the product of this programmatic growth is, what's the product? It's not disciples making disciples. It's not disciples making disciples. Let me ask you this. Is it disciples like Jesus? What is it? It's sustaining the program. It's and, and programmatic, what it's going to produce are cultural Christians. Yeah. And look what happens. Look at the insanity of the system. This consumes. What do you have to do to make cultural Christians happy? Give them more programs. You got to give them more programs. Look at instead of disciples who make disciples who make disciples, you got to have programs that make cultural Christians that demand more programs that consume to make more cultural Christians that demand more programs. See the insanity and the difference in the in the two. Um, I should have said in the beginning. I told the first group. Um, I, I'm on, I've been on staff at a church for 20 years, came out of the marketplace. I love the local church. And so if it sounds like I'm bashing the local church, I, I love, my calling out of the marketplace is the local church. What we do at Exponential is the local church. So just the disclaimer, don't take what I'm doing as bashing the church. I'm trying to be realistic at, you know, what do we got to do as the church in, said this last session too, the church is deconstructing in America right now. And over the next decade or two, we will see 
some form of reconstructing, hopefully. And the question is, what's that reconstruction going to be built on? If, if right now the house is burning down to the foundation, will the foundation of the future be Jesus and disciple-making? Or is it... I'm going to believe that when we get into reconstruction, it's not going to be rebuilt on programs. The next generation doesn't want it. If you just take the stats from the first thing, um, this is partly... This is partly to blame for the younger generation running away from the church right here. If we were doing this, I think they'd be flocking to the church. But this is cynical up here. Um, all right. Let's, um, let's pretend now that... Let's actually pretend we're doing disciple-making well. So we are actually doing it Jesus' way now. Okay? So um, the next dimension is wh what do you do with the fruit of disciple-making is where the second dimension comes from. Um, and, and here's what I mean by that. Um, if, if we were asking that question of the programmatic attractional church, what would you do with the fruit of converts? The answer would be, we got to get them plugged into service somehow. Like we got to get them, we, this consumption thing on the program. We got they're they're not part of the fuel for what we're doing. So the question is, if we really were actually in a healthy way making disciples, instead of our primary thing being we've got to get them into this programmatic consumption thing, what would we be doing with them? Sending them out. Sending and releasing. So the second dimension is mobilization. And again, there's an addition end and there's a multiplication end. And I want to start with, once again, kind of biblically, not what the church is actually doing, but if, if we were reasonably trying to follow the, the Bible and Paul's teaching, like what, what would the addition and multiplication ends of mobilization look like? Let me suggest um, on the addition end, if, if we go to Acts 2, the, the Acts 2 church living in common with one another, we get this picture of people who are serving one another. They're doing whatever it takes to take care of one another. We've got the church as a family functioning like a healthy family in, in an unhealthy culture. I'm not saying they were always healthy. I'm saying they're, we, we do see in Acts 2 that they're selling possessions and taking care of one another. So... What we've got on the addition end is, let's just call it living in common. We did at Exponential, one of our themes a number of years ago was an evangelism theme. So we went through the New Testament several times on just kind of what, what is the primary evangelistic model in the New Testament? And what we ended up landing on was it was no more difficult than um, insiders acting in a way that outsiders see a difference that's the living in common part like and and so from a mobilization standpoint we've got to be willing to do whatever it takes if it means holding babies serving what whatever we've got to do inside to live in common the multiplication is then living deployed it's the we not only have to do things inside the church as a family and model but we've also got to, outside the walls of the church, 
be living in a deployed kind of way. Does that follow on that simultaneous tension there? And, and see how in a programmatic church there's a tension there. It's how in the world can we send a lot of people out if we've got to run all the programs here inside the, the church. Let me use this analogy. Uh, I, my background is uh, engineering, and I was in the Navy. Anybody ever been on an aircraft carrier? Yes? A little bit. A little bit. So I want you to picture an aircraft carrier, this huge ship, okay? Um, what is the mission of an aircraft carrier? It's not a trick question. Is it to carry aircraft? To launch aircraft. It is to launch aircraft. So what is an aircraft carrier that never launches an airplane? It's called a cruise ship. <laughs> if you've ever been on an aircraft carrier, they eat the best food in the world. Okay? Like, it's really good. There's 5,000 people on an aircraft carrier. There's 120 airplanes, and there's 200 pilots. So piece all this together for a second, bear with me. The mission of an aircraft carrier is to launch airplanes to go where the aircraft carrier can't go. There's 4,800 people on an aircraft carrier who never fly in an airplane. There's 200 people who fly the airplanes, and then the 120 planes. I'm going to suggest to you, that, and, and they are a wonderful family. If you're on an aircraft carrier, you've got people washing and cleaning and cooking. The 4,800 are taking care of this floating city in a way that those 200 pilots can do their job. And I'm going to suggest to you that so goes an aircraft carrier, so goes the church in the United States. And let it sink in. A church of 5,000 would have a staff of hundreds, and all of the volunteers would exist at the end of the day to support what the paid staff are doing. And the question is, should we all, should every person in the church do what's ever needed here in Living in Common? Absolutely. It doesn't matter whether you're the CEO of the company or whatever. Everybody's got to do this. But the question is this. Is it really only a handful of people that are to live deployed? We've got to believe that if, if we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to walk in, that is not some vague promise for the whole church. It's a promise for individuals. We each have a unique equipping for living deployed. And now turn this into today with millennials, Gen Z, what they're looking for, the deconstruction of the church. If we don't figure this piece out, we're, we're, uh, let me say it the other way. As church starts, when we finally get to whatever deconstruction is going to look like and reconstruction is happening again, how can it not be that this is going to be a big part of it here, the reconstruction? It's going to be a micro, bivo, decentralized, everyone, an everyday missionary with an everyday mission field where they work, live, and play into the cracks and crevices of society. It is everyone flying an airplane off the aircraft carrier. It is we got to get into every nook and cranny of society. If Ephesians 1, 22 it's my favorite statement of the purpose of the church that Jesus is, the, that we, the church, are to be the fullness 
of Jesus everywhere. Like Jesus' fullness has the ability to penetrate and fill everything the way this room is filled with air. If you start thinking about how do believers carry the fullness of Jesus everywhere in everything, it isn't come and see. It's not the attractional program we're talking about. It's got to be a decentralized, stir the hornet's nest up to, to, to get things out. But here's the deal. It, this, without this, is as dangerous or more dangerous than this without that. That's the other danger we have moving into the future right now, is that the next generation wants this, is frustrated with this because of this, and wants to rebel against this and go do this, and then we don't have the church. Yeah. All we have is a bunch of missionaries. That's not bad. That makes it sound negative. We're bypassing the church without the healthy, functioning part of the living in common that's here. Does that make sense? So here's the question. Are we mod- if, if we live in a dysfunctional society right now, so the first question we have to ask is, we live in a dysfunctional time where the average person doesn't have healthy family. Is the church, on average in America, a role model for healthy family? No. Are we really doing this living in common in a way that it is what the church is intended to be? I'm going to suggest to you that we're just like up here. So here's the question. What's the word that replaces, just like programmatic replaces this, if we're not actually, if our word's not healthy family, what is our word that goes on the addition end of mobilization? Y'all are tired, so what's that? Isolation. Isolation. I'm going to suggest it's volunteerism. Okay. Do you know the church in the United States is the best volunteer mobilizer in the history of the world? Right now, this week, in one week time, if you added up all of the volunteer hours in the United States and you took the top 10 out of the top 10 organizations that mobilize volunteer hours, numbers 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 and you added them all up, numbers two through 10, they don't add up to number one. Guess what number one is? Church. It's church. The church mobilizes more volunteer hours every week than the next nine organizations combined. We know how to mobilize volunteers. Now here's the question. Are we mobilizing volunteers so they can go live to Boyd? So they can do this program. So look at the insanity. We're not mobilizing them to do that. What are we mobilizing them to do? Somebody said it. To do the program. So look at this. Volunteerism has to fuel. That's the consumption of programs. we got to get people into volunteerism. So look what we've just done. By not doing disciple-making Jesus' way and doing programs instead, we've then cut off the intended mobilization part of every every believer mobilized on mission into the nooks and crannies of society. Why? Because we need 927 people in the children's ministry this week. We gotta have 14 people in the hospitality thing. We gotta have, we gotta have, we gotta have, because we have to feed the program. Now hear me, I'm totally not saying everybody's gotta be willing to do 
the volunteer thing down here. It's just we've created a system that it is the goal, is to mobilize the volunteerism. So if I come back over to this drawing, we've, we've cut off the multiplication end on two of the three, and we're doing the addition wrong. That following that? So um, I feel like I need somebody to come sing an uplifting song. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The third dimension, um, well, anyone here done much study in the missional side of things? It's a guy named Alan Hirsch. Yeah. Anybody know Alan? So Alan's been a good friend of Exponential. Alan studied movements. He had uh, six elements of missional DNA. Is, was his, his uh, one of his big books. Um, I should have mentioned these three dimensions, two of Alan's movement things are in disciple-making, two of them are in mobilization, and two of them are on the third, which we, I wish there was a better word for this, but let's call it capacity building. Um, if, if you want to just say <coughs> church here, but... I want you to think for a minute what the idea of capacity is. So if I, if I say to you, I'm going to go to the refrigerator and get the gallon of milk, you can get a clear picture in your mind of a gallon of milk. It holds a certain amount of fluid. That fluid weighs seven point whatever gallons when you pull it out. The capacity, you can't put two gallons in the one gallon container. Otherwise, it spills. Capacity is how much of something can I put in? Is that making sense? That, that, so if you want to say infrastructure, capacity. So the third dimension is simply this. If the core purpose of the church is disciple-making, and I can go do disciple-making without the church. You could. And a second part of the church is to mobilize people for disciple-making on their unique giftedness into the cracks and crevices of society. The third dimension, is why I say it's either church or... How do you increase the capacity to do that? Becomes the question. So let's, let me go at it this way. The house church of the last 30 years in the United States, some of the missional side of things that have really tried to go after disciple-making, okay, where they get frustrated with the institutional part of capacity... So they go after disciple-making. Let me ask you this. If disciple-making is having its proper fruit, what happens? Church. How do you not end up with, like, if 12 people are meeting in a house church and they really are doing disciple-making Jesus' way, 12 can't stay 12. That's right. It's got to grow. What has happened in the, uh, I'm, I'm painting a broad brush here, but in some ways... The house church movement really wanted this, but the fruit has not been what it has been overseas in other places. Now, the missional movement, so now bring it to the missional movement of the last 10 to 15 years. What are they going after? It's, we got to go after the mobilization part. We got to go from here to there and get in. And again, the missional movement in the absence of the other dimensions it, ju it doesn't find a, a root in the church necessarily. So this third dimension is as simple as if we need to be doing disciple-making Jesus' way and we need to be doing mobilization the way it's intended, 
the capacity building part is how, so what's that look like? How do we scale the other two things? That, that makes sense? So if, if I can make it really practical right now, the addition end is everything we do locally in the church, from buildings to programs to whatever we do locally to increase our capacity for doing these other things, and then multiplies everything we do globally. It's beyond the local church. What are we doing to increase capacity? Which in the extreme is plant, planting new churches. We're to, the, the ultimate of capacity building for church is to start new churches. So this is what we do beyond ourselves. But let's stick with the local for a minute. So if this is, I'm just gonna call it local capacity, and that's global capacity. This is uh, optimizing the fruit on our tree in the orchard. This is lots of trees in the orchard and then new orchards. Most of us in our churches spend most of our time, how do we maximize the fruit on our tree? Okay, so let me ask you this. What are the things we do to increase capacity in the church? We've mentioned a bunch of them already. So what are the kinds of things we do? Build a bigger building. Buildings. Staff. Staff. Increasing programs. So this is where you get staff, buildings, programs. In some ways, all of this is, again, feeding... When I said in the beginning, the programmatic approach is our elephant in the room to the operating system in the U.S. It's causing our problems in, in the other side. Um, so let me ask you this, like leadership development pipelines. That's the hot trend the last five years in churches. Everybody needs a leadership development pipeline. Where's that fit on the picture? It's at least local capacity, right? And that's not necessarily bad. But part of what's happening, the, the, this trend the last five to seven years of leadership development pipelines, it's, it's simply the recognition programs consume, programs... We, we aren't necessarily doing leadership development here to mobilize people, to equip them to do Jesus' style of disciple-making. Almost all of our leadership development is to feed the programs of the church. There's a growing number of churches that are starting leadership residency pipelines for launching new churches specifically here. So we are seeing a growing number of churches doing, uh, doing that. Um, so part of what's happened is, we, we, you know, of all the dimensions, th- this one again, we're not, we're doing it differently than creating capacity the right way for this. And then I said in the beginning, 7% of U.S. churches are doing this. So we have to decide, you know, I'm going to suggest to you, if only 7% of, I mean, if you you put it in human population terms, if only 7% of human population were reproducing, we we wouldn't be around very long. It it can't sustain. So we have so few of churches, 93% of churches in America right now, are living here without this. So we once again cut off 
Yeah. And we're, we're doing this wrong. So what we've done is we've, by cutting off the multiplication end, but don't miss this point. It, the issue isn't that we've cut off multiplication. The real issue is we're doing addition the wrong way, which has the consequence of cutting off multiplication. So are, are you arguing for no programs? Absolutely not. Or are you it's a good question. For Sunday morning focused on equipping people to know Christ, grow relationships, and share the gospel, and then not tying up through the week programs where yeah. there are small groups that are disciplined. Yeah, we've got to figure out. Yeah. I think that I think we see clearly that the first century church had a food program. Yeah. So I I would not argue against programs. My message isn't anti-program. My message is when program becomes the normative method of addition such that your capacity building has to feed the programs and your volunteerism has to feed the programs. So what, what I would argue for is programs that are aimed at a healthy kind of capacity building that are, let me say it this way, I, I would be asking these questions on, I'm sitting in an elder board and we're thinking about whether to do this, whether to do that, whether to do the other. My questions are going to come to these two dimensions. How does this decision for spending money, staffing, creating new programs, how does it make us better at Jesus' style of disciple making? How does it make us better at being a healthy functioning family that mobilizes people into the corners of society? If I can't answer that question very succinctly, I'd be really careful what I'm doing. And this is where I referred to the study that we've done. This is where, this is like dangerous, okay? Because we've been able to now define as a, as a group of churches that anything and everything is discipleship. Right. Well now, man, you better have a better filter than that when you're sitting in that meeting deciding. You, you, the definition of, it's why I'm encouraging people, abolish the word discipleship in your language. Use disciple making and get a definition of disciple making Jesus way. And it's not just, hey, is this, is this something good for training people and teaching people that might contribute somehow indirectly to their disciple making? Like, is it directly contributing to their <coughs> disciple making part? And that's where I would be careful. It, it's not whether there's programs. It's what's the focus of the programs. Yeah. Just one quick follow-up. Yeah. The, uh, the question is, at our church, the church I'm at, how has this impacted our decision-making? Like, what are some examples of what we do or don't do kind of thing? So our church, on the Level 5 framework of subtracting, plateauing, adding, reproducing, multiplying, our church has planted 200 and some churches now. We are a very strong church-planting church. It's the founding church of Exponential. But we're still a Level 4 reproducing church. And we know as a church that if we don't get this disciple-making part right, we're, we're never going to get to level five. It's got to be to get the disciple-making part right. Now, the big question is, can an existing 20-year-old church that's strongly in what we're doing, can we change that operating system enough that we can actually get to the level five? And I don't want to, like, shortcut what God could do. I don't think we can. Like, I think, I think we've got to optimize the level four thing and be very careful with what we do with programs, we could end up blowing everything up and now not planting 10 to 15 churches a year. 
kind of thing. So the, what's happening with us is we know we've got to do better at the disciple-making. Our lead pastor, I mean, he's got it. Like, so he's got a really strong, if you know who Ying Kai is, that's uh, Discovery Bible Study, we're being coached by the guy who mentored Ying Kai as a church. Um, it's now part of our vocabulary. Every Sunday we're talking about disciple-making, disciple-making, disciple-making. And even though we're making lots of those changes, we're thinking about programs now through the lens of how does this facilitate disciple-making. And the reality is we are a successful church, and we don't know how to do what we're talking about. Again, I'm not trying to be discouraged. Now, for me, the issue is, the way this can be changed is the new stuff we're starting and the campus that I'm at of our church. I used to be the executive pastor and um, now I'm doing all the church planning stuff, but the campus that I'm at, our campus pastor is really trying to figure this out. I'm suggesting to him, um, is the other side of the board here? This is good for programs, actually. See, this would be, this is what happens at big churches. they They've got to have a men's and women's robing department to, uh, <laughs> and I love this church actually. I'll do this real quick. The, uh, in the attractional church, if anybody's read Andy Stanley's seven most important practices, your church can, it's, I forget the name of it exactly, but if you haven't read it, it's totally worth reading. It's about 20 years old. He talks about how, uh, We've got to move people one step at a time. It's like that idea of the stones in the creek to get them across the creek. And he uses this metaphor of uh, front yard, living room, or I'm sorry, front yard, foyer, living room, foyer, living room, kitchen. And it's the idea that when somebody comes to your front door, they kind of see inside the house that Sunday morning. When they come into your living room, they get into a little bit more intimate conversation. When they make it to your kitchen, it's like life on life. So for him... Out, I call it the front yard out here. So front yard, this is all your outreach, all that kind of stuff. And then he just splits it into foyer. This is Sunday a.m., living room. If you just want to say this, this is more like your ministries. And then uh, kitchen is small groups for them. Now, if you think about assimilation plans and the attractional church model, this is what our church does, okay? It's like outreach events, marketing. How do you bring people into the funnel? How do you get them a good experience on Sunday morning? How do you get them into something? And ultimately, how do you get them into small groups or something that's more life transformative? So I would suggest what we're now trying to do is say, we, we can't make disciple makers of everybody overnight, but what if this attractional pipeline is producing some people who become part of, I'm, I'm going to call it the SEAL team? So this is some number of people, they want to do Jesus-style disciple-making. They want to become disciple-makers. So now you reverse the funnel the other way. And it's this group, when people make it to here, now this group there's an entire another equipping set for how you're equipping these disciple makers to do what's on the other three-dimensional diagram. This is more what we're, we're trying to do, is not blow up the left side, but how do we have it be more focused to where it's, it's, it's the on-ramp to people that really want to get into the Jesus style.
Now, if I were starting a brand new church, you you could choose, and it's why we think the future increasingly micro vivo expressions. The two biggest expenses in church are buildings and staff. So let's assume we got to figure out an alternative to that. That alternative in the future looks to be micro churches bivocationally led. If I'm doing a micro church bivocationally led, I have a whole lot more flexibility to start here without all this stuff to the left. Just start small and expand. Yeah. Are we done? Yeah. So just real quick, I know we need to go because you have a quick turn to session three. But we want to give something to you for free. If you want to go to exponential.org slash kit, these are laying around the floor in your chair. We have a booth by the main entrance. Um, this is recordings, videos of Francis Chan, Robert Coleman, Jeff Fenderstelt, Jim Putman, Bill Hall, K.P. Yohannan um, of Disciple Making Conversations. So if you go to discipleship.org slash kit, you can have that for free uh, for those who are just attending um, the forum. Okay, so if we can help you with anything, let us know. Thanks for being here. That's it for today's episode. Make sure to check out Winfield Bevan's ebook that we mentioned at the top of the episode by going to discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for Multiplied Disciples. Thanks for listening. Until next time.